0: chapter 10, verse 1. As I watched, I saw on the platform above the top of the cherubim something like a sapphire resembling the shape of a throne appearing above them. And Yahweh said to the man dressed in linen, go between the wheelwork, underneath the cherubim. Fill your hand with the burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. He went as I watched. Now those coals from the altar also show up in Revelation. And the burning calls for the altar. Remember, the altar represents the burning atonement of sin, meaning the fire destroys the sin and burns it, but cleanses the sinner. Now, if you're one, now remember, everybody goes through the fire. First Peter makes it very clear that believers and non-believers will all go through the fire judgment. And if you are completely evil and filled with sin and do not have the blood of Christ then you, as the sinner, get completely destroyed. But if you have the blood in Christ in you, the blood of Christ allows you to be preserved through the judgment. And you come out on the other side refined like gold, according to 1 Peter. But everyone goes through the fire. So God takes this burning, cleansing fire that we learned about in Isaiah, and he tells the angel to throw it down the city. And everything that is sinful and evil will be burned to the ground, and everyone who is righteous bearing the mark will be preserved and come out through the fire. Now, this will not purify them completely in the same way the Holy Spirit is going to do for us because Christ's blood has not come yet. But at least allow them to escape this judgment so that they can then receive Christ and the blood through their faith. Verse 3, The cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple, When the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Now the cherubim on the south side of the temple is the closest to the Holy of Holies you can get. God's glory is in the Holy of Holies. Now remember the temple. So the Holy of Holies is in the west. And as you move west to east, you go out of the Holy of Holies, into the holy place, into the courtyard, and you leave. But the cherubim are south of that. And they're hanging out there. And God's glory is in the Holy of Holies. And the cherubim are south of the glory of God at the temple. And that's important to understand because their cherubim are going to begin to move. And you need to understand where they are. So he is in the Holy of Holies on the westernmost part, and they're in the south on the southernmost part. Then the glory of Yahweh arose from the cherub and moved to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with a cloud while the court was filled with the brightness of Yahweh's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard from the outer court like the sound of the sovereign God when he speaks. There's two groups of cherubim that are being referred to here. You're like, how can he lift off the cherubim if they're in the south and he's in the west and, and yet he's going to go towards them? Because there's cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, and that's his throne. So he's moving off of those cherubim, and going to the cherubim that's the portable throne, the chariot. And this is significant, because he's leaving the Holy of Holies and going to the threshold that goes into the holy place. And he's going to the cherubim going can come and pick him up, so to speak. So think of him being in the White House, and the limousine is coming for him. And he's the president. Verse 6, When Yahweh commanded the man, dressed in linen, take fire from within the wheelwork, from among the cherubim, and the man went in and stood by one of the wheels. And one of the cherubim stretched out his hand toward the fire which was among the cherubim, and he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man dressed in linen, who took it and left. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hands under their wings. As I watched, I noticed four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherubim. The wheels gleamed like jasper. As for their appearance, all four of them looked the same, something like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they would go in in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. And the direction the head would turn, in the direction the head would turn, they would follow without turning as they moved. Along with their entire bodies, their backs, their hands, their wings, their wheels. Of the four of them, were full of eyes all around. And as for the wheels, they were called the wheelwork. As I listened, each of the cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of the chairbeam. The second, that of a man, the third, that of a lion, and the fourth, that of an eagle. A lot of this is repetitive, but what God is making very clear is that this is the same thing that they saw earlier in chapter 1. But what's interesting is that one of the faces looks slightly different. So he says, As I listened, each of the cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of a cherub. This could be a bull. And so some of your translations say cherub, but the other Greek, the Hebrew could also mean bull or ox. So it may be most likely that it's that, or the ox's face has changed in some kind of a way. Verse 15, The cherubim rose up, and these were the living beings. I saw the Keber River. And when the cherubim moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the cherubim spread their wings to rise the ground, the wheels did not move from the side. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when they rose up, the wheels rose up. And with them, the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels." I know you're like, okay, I get this, I get this, I get this. When it moves, they move, and they move, and they move, and they move, and they move. And we've already heard this. <laughs> but here's the important thing. Everybody is doing what is right in their own heart in the temple and in Jerusalem. you got people in this part of the temple worshiping Tammuz. you got people in this part of the temple doing their own rituals. you got people worshiping the sun god here. And you got people in Jerusalem doing all these things. In the earthly material realm, everybody is doing what is right in their own heart, and they're all just scattering different directions in their own evilness. But when it comes to God's kingdom and the things that are in it and the beings that serve him, the wheels that are physical objects and the living creatures cherubim and the Holy Spirit of God and everything else, material objects and living beings and the spirit of God, are literally in 100 percent perfect unison, all moving together in the same direction led by the spirit. And that's the contrast that God's communicating here, is that you, you people on Earth, you just scatter in every direction, wherever your heart takes you. You've seen those movies, like in horror movies and stuff, or something's happening. I don't watch a lot of horror movies, but there's thrillers and stuff, like an alien ship and things are going wrong. And and they're like, and somebody's like, I'm going to go do this. And they're like, no, we should do this. I'm going to do this. And everybody just starts, and they go, and you're like, you're you're going to die. Like, seriously, you're all going to this dark abandoned ship and you have no idea what you're doing, but you're just following your heart. And they all die. Everything ends badly for them in some kind of way. And that's what God is saying. But in the kingdom of God, There's unity. And everybody works in perfect unity. And they all are led by the Holy Spirit. There's only one prayer of Jesus ever recorded in the Bible. And it's John chapter 17. And when he prayed, he said, Lord, I pray that they would be one with each other and one with us, like we are one with each other. The only prayer, like you give the Lord's prayer, but that's not his prayer. That's like a um, a template for praying. And we're told that he went off and prayed a lot. And there's a brief moment in the garden. We have his prayer, like, take this cup from me, but not my will. But the, the, the only prayer that we really see him pouring out his heart and a very extensive, well-thought-out prayer where he's conversing with God is, is that. It's the only prayer, chapter 17 of John. And the entire prayer is praying for unity, praying for unity. And that's what we see here. The kingdom of God is unified, and they work in unison with each other. And nobody goes and follows their own heart and does what they want. And there is, they're with God. And that's the contrast. You see all this disarray in the temple. But the thing that is coming for Yahweh is in perfect unison. The cherubim rose up, and these were the living creatures. I saw the Keber River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved. No, I read that. Verse 18 the glory of Yahweh moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings, and they rose up from the earth while I watched. And when they went, the wheels went alongside them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of Yahweh's temple as the glory of God of Israel hovered above them. So he has moved out of the Holy of Holies and out of the holy place, and they're at the eastern gate, and he's resting down on top of them now. Verse 20, these were the living creatures which I saw at the Keber River underneath the God of Israel. I knew that they were the cherubim. Each had four faces. Each had the four wings in the form of human hands under the wings. And as for the form of their faces, they were the faces of those of the parents that I had seen at the Keber River. Each one moved straight ahead. Chapter 11, verse 1, a wind lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of Yahweh's temple that faces the east. There at the entrance of the gate, I noticed twenty-five men. Among them I saw Jahazna, Jehazniah, son of Azor, and Pelatith, son of Benaiah, officials of the people. And Yahweh said to me, Son of man, these are the men who plot evil and give wicked advice to the city. They say the time is not near to build houses. The time is not near to build houses. The city is a cooking pot, and we are the meat in it. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, son of men. Cooking pot is a symbolic of judgment is coming. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon me and said to me, Say, this is what Yahweh says. This is what you are thinking, O house of Israel. I know what goes through your minds. You have killed many people in this city. You have filled its streets with corpses. Therefore this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. The corpses you have dumped in the midst of the city are the meat in this city, is the cooking pot. But I will take you out of it. You fear the sword, so the sword I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Yahweh. But I will take you out of the city, and I will hand you over to the foreigners, and I will execute judgments on you. You will die by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you will know that I am Yahweh. Remember, these are the three symbolic imageries of cutting up the hair, cutting the hair off, and then burning it chopping it, scattering. And God says, I'm going to burn you, chop you, scatter you. But notice this. He is standing at the eastern gate of the temple as he gives his judgment. And he says, and I will bring the judgment on you on the eastern border of the Israel, Jerusalem. What he's saying is this. Remember I told you that the entire land of Israel was like the Garden of Eden, like the temple as a whole. And when you leave the promised land, you're exiting the promised land of God, the temple of God, the garden of God. Not the literal garden of Eden, but the new one that God wanted to build through his people, but he couldn't, not because he couldn't, but because the people wouldn't obey him and do it. He's saying, you're going to exit the land now. I'm leaving the temple, and you're going to exit the land by my judgment. Verse 10, you will die by this sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. This city will not be a cooking pot for you and you will not be the meat within it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh whose statutes you have not followed and whose regulations you have not carried out, instead you have behaved according to the regulations of the nations around you. Now while I was prophesying, Pelatiah son of Beniah died, and then I threw myself face down and cried out with a loud voice, alas sovereign Yahweh, you are completely wiping out the remnant of Israel. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, They have gone far away from Yahweh to us. This is the land has given to them as a possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says, Although I have removed them far among the nations, I have dispersed them among the countries. I have been a little sanctuary for them among the lands where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. When I regather you from the peoples and assemble you from the lands where you have been dispersed, I will give you back the country of Israel. So Ezekiel begins to see the people die. And he says, God, you're going to kill them all. And God says, no, 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 don't worry. There are people who are righteous. There are people who are marked. And I will bring them back one day to the promised land. When they return to it, verse 18, they will remove from them all the detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. And I remove the hearts of stone from their bodies and I will give them their tender hearts. We've already seen this. This is the circumcision of the heart. So he's basically saying, when I return you to the land, they will no longer commit these abominations. Because for the first time ever, my spirit will be poured upon and in all of them. And it will give them a new heart that has never happened in the history of mankind to anybody and any nation. And of course, he's talking about Pentecost. But we haven't gone there yet. But one thing you have to realize is that the exile doesn't technically end when they return to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. Because. They keep committing the abominations, and they don't have the new heart, and they don't have the Holy Spirit to on them. And when they ask Zechariah, who is a post-exilic prophet, we're back in the land, and it doesn't feel like anything's changed. Isn't the exile over with? And Zechariah is going to respond and say exile is over with when you repent and you turn to God. Meaning that physical exile out of the land is over with, but the exile from God is not over with. And that's why Christ's coming in the Pentecost is so huge, because that's when true exile comes to an end. So there is the, so this is the beginning of an exile where the physical exile will end in 70 years. But the true spiritual exile that everybody's constantly talking about, the prophets and God, is not going to come and end until Jesus and the Holy Spirit come and dwell us and actually give us the ability to stop performing these abominations. Now, remember, it doesn't mean that we will not commit sins when we become Christians, but it doesn't mean for the first time ever our hearts are being changed and sanctified and purified so that we can eventually one day become without sin and that we actually have the desire to not want to do these abominations. And so this is what he's prophesying. That day will come one day. Verse 20 that they may follow my statues and observe my regulations and carry them out. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. So why am I going to give them a new heart, pour my spirit on them? So they can actually obey me. So I will be their God and they will be my people and will be in a relationship the way that I wanted it all along in the Garden of Eden. But those whose hearts are devoted to detestable things and abominations, I hereby repay them for what they have done, says Sovereign Yahweh. That's exactly how the book of Revelation ends. Those who accept the blood of Christ, they will live in the new kingdom, and the Lamb will be our temple, and God will be our temple, and we will dwell with them. But those who perform these abominations will be in the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 22, Then the cherubim spread their wings and their wheels alongside of them while the glory of God of Israel hovered above them. And the glory of Yahweh rose up from within the city and stopped over the mountain east of it. That's the Mount of Olives. So you go off the temple... And you drop down to the Kidron Valley. He didn't. He flew over the Kidron Valley. You drop over the Kidron Valley, and then you move back up the Mount of Olives, and that's the mountain he's talking about. And the bottom of the Kidron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. So that gives you an idea where they are when Jesus is in the Second Testament. Then a wind lifted me up from carried me from the exiles in Babylonia to the vision given to me by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything that Yahweh had showed me. Now this is powerful. The Shekinah glory of God began to dwell with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt in 1446. The Shekinah glory of God was with them every single day since 1446. And it will not leave until 586 BC. That's a long time to have the presence of God. And then one day he's gone. Now remember, Israel, Judah was very hypocritical or very contradictory. In one moment, they're like, God has abandoned us. He's not with us. We will go after other gods and worship them and da, 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 da. And then so the prophets come in and they say, God's going to destroy you. He's going to wipe you out for your sins because you've abandoned him. And they're like, God will never destroy this because he lives with us and he's in the temple and the Shekinah glory is there and nothing bad could ever happen to us because God is with us. That's a totally contradictory statement. And so every time Jeremiah said, God is going to destroy you, God is going to destroy you, and that temple is going to be destroyed, they're like, no, nothing can happen. You're saying that God can be stopped and God can be destroyed and his house can be destroyed. That can never happen. You're the heretic, Jeremiah. You think people can destroy God. And Jeremiah's like, the day is coming, what's going to come? Because they never could imagine the actual temple no longer having God's glory because it have been with them since 1446, For over a thousand years. And so God says, you know how I can destroy the temple in the city? I'm going to leave. You're right. Nothing can destroy the city when my name is on it. My character is in it. My presence in it. Nothing can come against you if I am in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You're right. You're absolutely right. But you defile this place. And I can't be where sin is. And so I'm going to leave it. And when I leave it, that temple is going to be just a building. And that Ark of the Covenant is going to be just a box. And this city is just going to be a city. And my name slash character will no longer be on it or in it. And anything can happen to you. Now remember, one of the scariest things that God could ever do is remove himself from you. And when God said to Israel, you want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you a king like all the other nations. He gave him Saul. Now, he didn't want Saul to be that way. He put his spirit upon Saul. And he gave Saul every chance to not be a king like all the other nations. But Saul refused. So God, in judgment, removed his spirit from Saul. And in that moment, Saul truly became a king like all the other nations because now he was a king without the spirit of God. He was a king without the will of God speaking to him. He was now a king who had to make every decision in his own wisdom. And we've all seen through the, the wisdom literature how well man's wisdom works out for him. And we've seen it in our own country, we've seen it in nations around us, and, the, and we've seen it in the Bible. And you're like the in world when you're completely led only by your own devices or the devices of the people around you. And then anything can happen to you. All the randomness that happens to people around you who are not believers, the same randomness that can happen to you. Unless you repent. God made it very clear if you repent, I'll come back. If you repent, I'll come and dwell on you again. This is what he's saying. You wanted to be a nation like all the other nations. But my grace and my compassion and my mercy stayed with you since 1446, despite all your fist shaking at me and all your go-away gods and all your rebellion and all your idolatry. And I kept coming to you and I kept calling you to repentance and I kept redeeming you and I kept showing you grace. For over a thousand years, you shook your fist at me and rebelled and I stayed with you. And the entire time, you raged against the machine and said, I want to be a man like all the other nations. And God says, this is the day that you finally get what you want. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. And Remember, the worst judgment that God could ever do is not punish you with horrible, direct judgments. The worst thing He could ever do is give you what you want. To allow you to pursue your selfish nature. And to put his hands up and say you're on your own. Most of the time, God's worst judgments are not active. They're passive. And I'm not saying he's a passive God. I'm just saying him backing off and saying, you can do what you want now. It's kind of like my kids. Like sometimes you tell them a million times, don't do that, don't do that. And they keep doing it and they get hurt. And you're like, you're not going to listen to me. You're just going to have to learn the hard way. I've done everything I can to warn you and protect you. But I'm not God, and I'm not everywhere at one time. And one day you're just going to to fall, split open your head, bleed everywhere, and maybe you'll begin to learn, don't do that. (laughs) okay? And I don't want that. That's going to break my heart. It's going to freak me out when I see that. I have to clean up that mess, and I will be there for you. But you've got to learn. And that's what God is saying. You're on your own. And this, I think, is one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible. God's glory actually left. And he, but here's what's interesting. He didn't abandon Israel because he went off into exile and he joined the exiles in Babylon and he stays with them. And so what God is answering here is, how can he destroy his people in his city if he is there? And the answer is he's not there anymore. But the other thing means he's, he's not there anymore. And he made a promise that he would dwell with them for all eternity. And so what he's doing is going to a new location to dwell with them. And so he's making it very clear that, yes, this land was holy, and it was the promised land of God, and it was like the Garden of Eden. And if you were outside of it, you were outside of God, and if you were in it, you were in with God. But that was because God was there. But if God decides to pick up and move his presence somewhere else, that becomes the new Garden of Eden. And that becomes where God is. And to be there is to be with God, and to leave there is to leave the presence of God, and to rebel against him. And so what he's doing is making it clear that anywhere that he is, and this is why I believe very strongly that, yes, heaven is a very literal physical location, but what makes heaven awesome and great is not the big mansions and the streets of gold and all the amazing things and no sin. What makes it truly awesome is that you're with God. This is why we're not given hardly any details of what heaven looks like because who cares? The point that the Bible is making is that God is there, God is the temple, God is the light, and we will dwell with him. Even the garden, we get very little imagery of what the garden looked like. But what we are told is that this is the temple of God. Yes, heaven is a real location, but it doesn't matter what it looks like or where it is. It only matters that God is there, and that's where we're going. And so Babylon has become the new. And so what he's painting is this is the idea that it also setting you up for the fact that then if God can change locations, then he can also change people. And that's the point that Paul's making, how he's moved away from the Jews and he's moved to the Gentiles and they become the church. But God, Paul's also making the point that he can leave the church and go back to the Jews if he wants to. Because the people of God is where God is. And the land of God is where God is. And it doesn't matter whether you're ethnically this or you're geographically there. All that matters is you're where God is. And that's why the book of Revelation doesn't focus on a people or a place. It says that all the people and all the places on the earth will become the kingdom of God one day. Because that's the ultimate goal. And that's why Jesus says a day is coming when you will not worship God on that temple or that temple or on that hill or that hill or on this festival or that holiday and no day will become more holy than any other day. A day is coming when all locations and all people and all days are going to be holy because he's going to change the entire world to become the kingdom of God one day. And he's beginning to prepare their paradigm for that now. By shifting places and shifting people and shifting in time, he can beginning to break them away from this idea that that land and that temple and us ethnically, we're the only ones. But they didn't learn that. We're going to see with Ezra and Nehemiah, they didn't learn that. They excluded people. We're going to see when we get to the Pharisees, they're going to be like, thank God that I'm not a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. And because they saw them all as outside the people of God. And when Jesus says, I tell you, just like Elijah went to the Gentiles and none of the Jews accepted him, the prophet, so it is with me. And they got mad because they knew what he was saying. They didn't get that it's not about a specific place, person, or time. It's about being in a relationship with God. And that's what God is trying to move them away from. And that's one of the reasons he did not want a temple. Because the minute they build a temple, they think that's the house of God and his house is in our backyard and we're special and they're not. And so God left his house because he didn't want to be bound down like that. And he didn't want people to have ownership over him because no one has ownership over God. All we have ownership over is our desire desire to be with him. That's the only thing we have ownership. And that's what he's doing here. But it also answers the question is, when will this come back? Because he did make promises that it would come back to the land. So the question is, when will it come back? And to what land will it come back? And what will it look like? And those are the three big question marks you should let hover over your head. Now, I've kind of hinted at it and kind of mentioned it, but basically it's not going to happen until Jesus comes. And that's why they're going to be so confused. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to lead them back. And that's why a lot of Christians today are confused. They think it's about a rebuilding of a temple. They think it's about something happening in Israel. It has nothing to do with God rebuilding a temple or something happening in Israel. It has everything with what God has already done. He's put the Holy Spirit in us at Pentecost and since then. We'll talk about that more when we get to the last chapters of Ezekiel. Because the last chapters of Ezekiel look forward to the return of God's glory. But the imagery that he's painting here is very physical and concrete, except for the vision of God's glory. But the imagery that we're going to give of the temple in the last chapters is not as concrete, even though it's on first reading it feels like it is. So we're going to talk about that when we get there. His glory has left, and now it opens this city wide open for the Babylonians come completely in, unchecked. And the only people that are going to be protected and the destruction of Israel are the people who have the mark on their head in Jerusalem and the people that are already in exile where God's glory now is. Those are the only people that are safe. Now the people in exile, he comes back and he tells all the exiles, this is the vision I just saw. This is an incredible vision. Mind-blowing. Discombobulating in every kind of a way. And he tells them this. That's how chapter 11 ends. And they're like, eh, whatever. God will never destroy his city. God will never destroy his temple. And Ezekiel's like, what the heck? Do you think I make this up? If I make it up, it wouldn't be that consistent. And if it was my imagination or dreams, it wouldn't be that consistent. Okay, Even though it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, the imagery is, wow, the consistency paints a reality here.